Hello, knowledge seekers. In this episode of 20-Minute Books, we delve into the extensive narrative of India After Gandhi, a comprehensive chronicle by acclaimed historian Ramachandra Guha. This profound work encapsulates the tumultuous journey of India from the moment of its independence in 1947 to its evolution into the world's most populous democracy. Guha, a renowned Indian historian and writer whose expertise in Indian political and social history has been recognized globally, provides a meticulously detailed account of the events that have shaped modern India. His works, including Gandhi Before India and Gandhi, The Years That Changed the World, 1914-1948, have been praised for their insight and depth, earning him a distinguished place amongst contemporary historians. India After Gandhi is essential reading for students of history, particularly those with a focus on South Asia, offering an arresting examination of India's post-colonial development. It's equally compelling for Indian readers seeking to understand the complex tapestry of their nation's recent past. Political enthusiasts with an interest in the intricacies of regional dynamics will find in this book a rich source of knowledge about a formidable and influential democracy. Join us in exploring the struggles and triumphs that have defined India after its break from colonial rule and its steadfast path towards establishing a democratic identity. Discover the pivotal moments and key figures that continue to influence the nation's contemporary trajectory. India after Gandhi is not just a book, it's a sweeping journey through the centuries that have seen India emerge as a powerhouse of diversity, adversity, and resilience. India after Gandhi, the history of the world's largest democracy. Introduction, unveiling the democratic marvel of post-independence India. Picture a nation teeming with a population only second in magnitude to China, yet standing apart with a vibrant tapestry of democratic values. That's India for you. Since shaking off British colonial shackles in 1947, India has not only preserved its democratic fabric, but has also woven a stunning narrative of resilience and diversity. The tale of India's democracy is nothing short of extraordinary. Imagine a land more diverse than the entirety of Europe, home to a myriad of ethnicities, religions, and over 700 languages. This complexity left many skeptics questioning India's potential to thrive as a unified, secular state. The birth pains of a divided subcontinent. India's initiation into independence was marred by the tumultuous and bloody chapter of partition. The British Empire, in its final act on the subcontinent, cleaved the land into two entities, a Hindu-majority India and a Muslim-majority Pakistan. This decision unleashed an unprecedented exodus, significant violence, and sowed enduring enmity between the two nascent nations, with cascading consequences and multiple ensuing battles. Navigating a treacherous path toward unity and progress, despite the profound challenges mounted by its vast diversity and the scars of its partition with Pakistan, the Republic of India stands tall. Its spirit is embodied by the over a billion citizens who regularly cast their votes, a testament to their unwavering faith in democratic ideals. 
The journey hasn't been devoid of crises, including grappling with the specter of authoritarian rule in the 20th century, yet the Republic perseveres and marches towards a promise-laden horizon. In our exploration, we'll delve into the gritty details of how India managed the largest refugee calamity known to humanity, the riveting stint of a woman who steered the nation's reins as its sole autocrat in the last century, and the nagging issue of Kashmir which often surfaces, casting a long shadow on geopolitical discourse. Part 1. The seeds of the world's largest democracy were sown on a historic day in 1947. To fully grasp India's monumental achievement of independence, we must step back into the annals of history, where the British Empire extended its tendrils, enveloping the Indian subcontinent. What started with mercantile forays in the 1600s metamorphosed into direct colonial dominion by the mid-19th century, an era known as the British Raj. Here lay a land of staggering pluralism. Hundreds of languages echoed under the Raj's umbrella, and a myriad of religions interwove India's cultural fabric. Yet the British imperial mindset was skeptical, if not dismissive, of India's prospects for self-governance given its intricate social tapestry. The thought seemed preposterous. How could India, more diverse than Europe, flirt with the ambition of becoming a united democratic republic? Comments from British Indian official John Strachey in 1888 underscored this disbelief. He remarked that India's regions were as disparate as Spain is from Scotland. However, the Indian National Congress, INC, a political movement born in 1885, dared to dream differently. They envisioned an India bound by a singular sense of nationhood, transcending its internal differences. As the clamor for independence swelled by the 1930s, doubts persistently clouded British outlook, with figures like Winston Churchill foreseeing an independent India descending into ceaseless conflict and disintegration. Cue to the aftermath of World War II. A bruised and cash-strapped Britain could no longer clutch onto its imperial expanse. Thus, the ambitions of the INC Pao and the prolonged aspirations of Indians inched toward reality. On the 15th of August, 1947, the Democratic Republic of India emerged a patchwork of 28 states with some eclipsing the size of European nations. This was not just a feat of political liberation, but a monumental unification of over 500 princely states, kingdoms with their own long-standing sovereignties. The INC's endeavor to weave this diverse quilt into a single nationhood was met with roaring success, albeit with notable exceptions. Unagad and Hyderabad, two of the holdouts, found themselves integrated into India, their reluctance overridden by the fledgling Indian government. Yet the case of Jammu and Kashmir unfurled into a prolonged and thorny issue, still entangled in contemporary geopolitics. Amidst this complex backdrop, a new political symphony was orchestrated. Political thinker Sunil Kilnani celebrated the Republic of India as the third pivotal democratic experiment of modern times, standing alongside the revolutions that redefined France and the United States. India's testimony, a testament to the fervor and potential of democratic ideals arising from the most unyielding of circumstances. Part 2. 
In the wake of freedom, India faced the harrowing challenges of partition. When dawn broke over the newly sovereign nation of India, the government that took the reins was as diverse as the country itself. Its cabinet was an emblem of unity, comprising members across the religious spectrum Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, and Christians. Each individual hailed from a different corner of India's vast terrain. The nation's moral compass, the celebrated Mahatma Gandhi, was affectionately embraced as the father of the nation. As celebratory banners unfolded in New Delhi on Independence Day, Gandhi's teachings permeated every speech, every parade. Yet, Gandhi himself was absent from the festivities, immersing instead in a fast of solidarity and peace in Calcutta. The reason for Gandhi's fast was ominous. India's independence had unfurled alongside the ghastly spectre of partition, a schism that trifurcated British India and birthed Pakistan, a separate nation for Muslims. This division writhed with communal strife as inter-religious violence spiralled out of control. While Hinduism flourished across India, Islam was predominant in the northwest and northeast fringes. Gandhi, an unwavering advocate of a secular, undivided India, was countered by Muslim leaders like Muhammad Ali Jinnah, who championed the creation of Pakistan. His campaign, Direct Action Day, had tragically morphed into bloodshed in Calcutta, a catastrophic riot leaving thousands dead and setting off a domino effect that culminated in over a million fatalities. Undeterred by the worsening ethnic clashes, Gandhi embarked on a poignant trek, walking barefoot for 116 miles, endeavoring to douse the flames of hatred between Hindu and Muslim communities. Yet the bitter religious discord had sealed the decision of the British to cleave the land into two separate states. As the reality of the division sank in, fear ushered in a mass exodus, propelling over 10 million people to cross borders in a frantic migration. This seismic movement of humanity reshaped demographics and inflicted unspeakable suffering, becoming the largest forced migration in history. Gandhi's response was to relentlessly crisscross the nation, a solitary figure epitomizing nonviolence, fasting in a bid to stem the tide of migration and violence. Nevertheless, not all were swayed by his message of unity. The efforts to shield the Muslim minority from violence in the new India irked Hindu hardliners, and the nation's collective heart shattered on January 30, 1948, when the man who preached love and peace fell to the bullets of an assassin named Nathuram Godse during a prayer assembly. Part 3. Three Catalysts That Led to the Division of a Nation and a Legacy of Strife The fissures that led to the Great Divide known as the partition of India, can't be traced to a single source. Instead, a confluence of forces brought about one of the most tumultuous periods in the subcontinent's history. British policies, the actions of the Indian National Congress, INC, and Muslim political leaders collectively set the stage for fragmentation. Firstly, the British strategy of divide and rule played its part. Their administrative mechanisms often pitted Hindus against Muslims. Take the municipal elections, for instance. 
where religious electoral quotas ensured Muslims could only vote for Muslims and Hindus for Hindus, fostering an environment ripe for division. The INC also bore responsibility. The drumbeat of the Muslim League, led by Muhammad Ali Jinnah to champion Indian Muslim interests for greater political collaboration, was met with resistance. Gandhi and the INC's upper echelon misjudged the pulse of the Indian Muslim populace, assuming that secular socialism would overshadow religious identity. This refusal to engage left Jinnah with no recourse but to advocate for an independent Muslim state, Pakistan, a vision that he proclaimed in 1940. Jinnah's foresight seemed prophetic when his Muslim League clinched the majority of Muslim seats in the 1946 provincial elections, showcasing the sway he held amongst Muslim voters. The INC's socialist agenda with promises of land reforms clashed with the Muslim League's narrative, which amplified fears of subjugation by a Hindu majority. In the aftermath of this electoral sweep, Jinnah orchestrated Direct Action Day, a demonstration intended to deepen the divide between Muslims and Hindus. The ensuing bloodshed undeniably nudged Britain towards the inexorable decision of partition. The mechanics of partition boiled down to British administrators drawing borders that cleaved historic provinces based on religious majorities. Bengal and Punjab were severed, triggering massive waves of refugees seeking new homelands. Amidst this wrenching upheaval, it was Jammu and Kashmir, a strategic gem touching the frontiers of Afghanistan, China and Tibet, that sparked the first direct conflict between the newborn twin states of India and Pakistan. As one of the trio of princely states recalcitrant to align with either country at independence, it emerged as a flashpoint, a prelude to enduring geopolitical tensions spanning decades. Part 4. The shadow of conflict over Jammu and Kashmir darkens early India-Pakistan ties. The tapestry of India-Pakistan relations was marred with strife from the outset, with the heart of contention throbbing in the picturesque yet politically volatile region of Jammu and Kashmir. Governed by the Hindu monarch Hari Singh, the area originally housed a Muslim majority, though the demographics dramatically shifted following the refugee struggles post-partition. Initially, the ruler of this mountainous realm aspired for it to be an oasis of tranquility, a neutral territory akin to Switzerland. However, these hopes unraveled as tensions escalated. Pro-Pakistan insurgents instigated skirmishes on Pakistan's Independence Day, and by October, thousands of Pakistani militants seized Srinagar, unleashing brutality upon civilians without religious bias. Faced with such aggression, Singh's decision was grim, yet straightforward. In seeking aid from India, he understood the implicit trade-off, the incorporation of Jammu and Kashmir into Indian dominion. The Indian military promptly responded, reversing much of the insurgents' gains. But the advance was halted as the winter's chill set in, freezing the conflict in its tracks. India's first Prime Minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, handpicked by the INC, sought a diplomatic resolution and brought the quandary before the UN Security Council. There, he and Pakistan's Prime Minister, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, both concurred on the necessity of a plebiscite. The people of Jammu and Kashmir ought to choose their allegiance democratically. Alas, the leaders hit an impasse over the nature of transitional governance, resulting in a deadlock. 
Britain's alignment with Pakistan in the Security Council debates disheartened India. Speculation was rife that in the shadow of the burgeoning Cold War, Britain found strategic value in Pakistan as a potential base for aerial assaults against the Soviet Union. Kashmir's proximity to Soviet territory underscored the region's geopolitical significance. With winter's thaw in 1948, the hostilities resumed in Jammu and Kashmir, yet both nations soon confronted a military standstill. Advancing meant India invading Pakistan's core territory, a move fraught with peril. A ceasefire led to the establishment of the line of control, an ad hoc boundary slicing through Jammu and Kashmir, delineating Indian and Pakistani administered areas. That line of control has cemented its place in the geopolitical landscape, enduring as an unresolved scar in the chronicle of these South Asian neighbors up to this day. Part 5. In the aftermath of independence, India faced a colossal refugee crisis and the task of constitution building. As India embraced its newfound sovereignty, it also confronted the humanitarian avalanche of partition a deluge of non-Muslim refugees. Before the ink of independence had even dried, the Republic found itself host to an influx of eight million souls seeking sanctuary. The division of land was particularly seismic in Punjab. Driven by the schism, swarms of non-Muslim West Punjabis were resettling on the Indian side, spurring a frenzied establishment of refugee camps. Among these, Kurukshetra stood out, a temporary home to a staggering 300,000 refugees just north of Delhi. However, these camps were not the end game for the displaced. The Indian government took swift action, reassigning the abandoned lands left by Muslims who crossed over to Pakistan. By the closing weeks of 1949, a quarter of a million plots were allotted, rekindling the semblance of previous village communities. Though complete replication was unfeasible, many found familiarity as neighbors and kin were often resettled in proximity to one another. Amidst this monumental resettling endeavor, India embarked on a defining journey, crafting a constitution that would enshrine the rights and liberties of its multifaceted populace. For three years, an assembly representing the full spectrum of Indian society convened with the unified aim of piecing together this foundational document. Granville Austin, an American historian, likened the significance of this endeavor to that of the formation of the U.S. Constitution in 1787. India's constitution set its sights on a dual revolution, nationally, to cultivate democracy and liberty absent during colonial rule, and socially, to dismantle centuries-old inequities entrenched in gender and caste. Universal suffrage was a groundbreaking achievement, casting aside gender disparities at the ballot box. Equanimity across faiths was a pillar of the new legal framework, an audacious move in a land deeply steeped in religious diversity. The caste system's rigid stratification faced challenges as well, with the constitution affording special provisions for the untouchables, the most marginalized caste, reserving for them seats in legislative bodies and public offices, heralding an era of inclusive politics. Though the Constitution's passage was a momentous victory for Prime Minister Nehru and the INC, persistent partition scars and the Kashmir imbroglio loomed large. 
Nevertheless, with the ink fresh on a document promising equality for all, India readied itself for another test of its democratic mettle, the first general election. The fledgling nation braced for what would be the largest exercise of democratic franchise the world had ever witnessed. Part 6. India's maiden electoral voyage sets the democratic course and shapes international relations. As India treaded its first steps in the post-colonial era, naysayers abounded. Critiques spiraled about the impracticality of democracy in a country punctuated by illiteracy and diversity. Yet, the general election of 1952 painted a different picture altogether, quashing the lingering colonial skepticism. The Indian populace faced a literacy barrier. A staggering 85% of potential voters were unable to read or write. Innovations in electoral design emerged as a solution, with symbols like elephants and huts marking ballots to represent political parties, surmounting the challenge of illiteracy. Even stray cows turned into mobile billboards, emblazoned with slogans urging the masses to vote Congress. Prime Minister Nehru was at the forefront, not just contending with the election, but with the aftermath of partition, the Kashmir quagmire, and the persistent shadows of poverty and inequality. Undaunted, he traversed the length and breadth of the nation, rallying 20 million people with the ideals of unity and hope across 300 assemblies. Contrary to many a commentator's forecast, the election unfolded with impeccable democratic decorum. A turnout of 60% attested to the citizenry's engagement, and the Indian National Congress clinched a commanding majority in Parliament crowning India as the largest democracy in the world. With democratic credentials cemented, Nehru's next ambition was reform, to embed his party's agenda into the fabric of the nation. But a chill from the Cold War front complicated matters. The United States, beholden to the binary world paradigm, frowned upon India's stance of non-alignment. America deemed Pakistan a more dependable ally perceiving India's socialist leanings and perceived leniency on communism with suspicion. Meanwhile, India viewed America's policies as colonialist, especially as the U.S. grappled with anti-colonial sentiments in Vietnam toward the late 50s. Conversely, India found a warmer reception from the Soviet Union. The USSR had extended a helping hand with food aid during India's refugee crisis and Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev noted India's pivotal role as a mediator during the Korean War. Khrushchev's inaugural visit in 1955 was met with an outpouring of half a million jubilant Indians. The visit extended to the contested grounds of Kashmir, where Khrushchev, to Nehru's delight, endorsed the region as an inseparable part of India. This Soviet gesture further entrenched the camaraderie between the two nations during a time of global tension and shifting alliances. Part 7. India embarks on transformative social and economic reforms in the 1950s. As the dust settled on the newly democratic India, Prime Minister Nehru seized the momentum from his electoral victory to chart a bold course for the nation's future. His vision entailed sweeping reforms that would reshape India's societal landscape and establish new economic foundations. 
First on Nehru's agenda was the ambitious agricultural transformation outlined in India's debut five-year plan, spanning 1951 to 1956. Agriculture, the cradle of India's economy, encompassing 60% of its GDP, beckoned modernization. Monumental infrastructures like mammoth dams surfaced across the country, amongst which the Bakra Dam stood colossal, an engineering marvel that surpassed Egypt's pyramids in its use of construction materials. Its twofold triumph lay in electrification and transforming the parched earth into fertile fields for the farmer refugees from East Pakistan. The successive five year plan running from 1956 to 1961, shifted focus towards industrial leapfrogging. India's intelligentsia and business magnates coalesced around a vision of state-led industrial growth. Under a socialist framework, strategic sectors such as energy, steel and iron fell under the state's auspices, while consumer goods beckoned to the private sector's ingenuity Anchored by the five-year plan's objectives, India set out to attain economic self-reliance, striving to shake off centuries of colonial subjugation. The nation's gusto paid off, with GDP growth outpacing targets in the first plan and narrowly missing the mark in the second. The trajectory was clear. India was steadily steering towards economic modernization. Parallel to economic strides, were the constitutional commitments catalyzing a modern, equitable society. Laws unfurled granting women the agency to choose life partners and claim inheritance rights on par with men. Viewed through the prism of the time and set against the backdrop of Hindu law, these reforms were nothing short of revolutionary, propelling India towards gender parity. The marginalized, scheduled castes, historically denigrated as untouchables, witnessed a transformative uplift. Education, once a luxury beyond reach, saw enrollment from these communities surge over a 10-year horizon. This societal makeover was not only a moral victory, but also translated into robust political support. In 1957, Nehru's INC won the hearts and the votes of the scheduled castes, capturing 64 out of the 78 seats allocated to them a testament to the party's successful social engineering. Part 8. As the 60s dawned, India faced internal political shifts and deteriorating international relations. Success had favoured the Indian National Congress in the 1957 elections, embellishing its national dominance. But the winds of change ushered in new power dynamics within state politics. The southern bastion of Kerala, saw the ascension of the Communist Party of India, who introduced swift and sweeping reforms in land tenure and education. However, this ignited protest from the upper echelons of landowners and religious factions, triggering a mass campaign of civil disobedience. The ensuing turmoil compelled Prime Minister Nehru to wield a constitutional provision, Article 356, which sanctioned the dissolution of a state's government. Though inwardly Nehru applauded many of the communist initiatives, external pressures and the urgency of stability prompted him to curtail Kerala's experiment in radical policy. The International Front presented its array of challenges too, particularly with neighbouring China. The 1950s had seen a cordial Indochina rapport, 
a balance against the strengthening alliance between the United States and Pakistan. India's concession to China over the Tibet issue in 1954, with China agreeing to maintain Tibetan autonomy, seemed to fortify this friendship. Yet, shadows stretched over this camaraderie as Tibet's friction with China escalated in 1957, peaking with the Dalai Lama's dramatic escape to Indian refuge. China, already harboring suspicions of Indian aid to the Tibetan uprising, bristled upon the Dalai Lama's arrival in India. Adding fuel to the flame, Nehru received intelligence reports of covert Chinese infrastructural forays within Indian territory along the shared Himalayan frontier. China's subsequent territorial claims contested the legacy of British-made borders. Attempts at diplomacy floundered, and by August 1959, border scuffles had broken out. China's claims were bold, dismissing the extant boundary as an imperial hangover and calling for renegotiation. A smoldering tension erupted into full-fledged conflict on October 20, 1962 with a sudden Chinese military offensive across the Himalayas catching India off guard. Nevertheless, the invasion was fleeting. The harsh Himalayan winter and looming American support for India led China to retract to pre-war positions, now recognized as the line of actual control. This brief but brutal Himalayan encounter left deep scars on India's national psyche. The anguish of territorial loss and military defeat lingered as a dark chapter in Prime Minister Nehru's otherwise illustrious political journey. Part 9. The mantle of leadership passes to Indira Gandhi amid India's testing times. In the wake of Jawaharlal Nehru's departure from the world stage, after a momentous tenure of 17 years at India's helm, the search for a worthy successor commenced. The mantle of leadership eventually fell upon his daughter, Indira Gandhi, a choice perceived as a beacon of continuity and unity for a nation haunted by its recent military setback and the loss of its esteemed leader. Endowed with international recognition but scant political experience, Mrs. Gandhi's ascendancy to power coincided with harrowing challenges. India grappled with crippling drought and ensuing food scarcities that struck at the heart of the laboring class. Meanwhile, violent strife targeting Indian Muslims was on the rise, echoing the tensions with Pakistan over Kashmir that flared in 1965. Moreover, regional political factions began asserting their influence, eyeing the forthcoming 1967 general election with ambition. Troubles were aplenty, and the 1967 polls delivered a heavy blow to the Indian National Congress, curtailing its influence across various state legislatures an unprecedented predicament since the dawn of independence. Despite these setbacks, Mrs. Gandhi maintained a tenable parliamentary majority to persist in governance. This electoral jolt spurred a dramatic shift in her approach. Radical reforms supplanted her father's legacy of gradualism. One of her boldest strokes was nationalizing India's major private banks in July 1969, aiming to palliate economic distress marked by rampant inflation and stimulate growth by extending credit facilities to farmers and the working class. The measure won widespread approval among the populace. The Indian Supreme Court, however, did not share this enthusiasm, denouncing the bank nationalization as a constitutional breach. 
Undeterred and seeking a popular mandate as vindication, Mrs. Gandhi propelled the nation towards an early election in 1971. The fruits of her agricultural policies began ripening, substantially augmenting wheat production with the introduction of high-yield varieties. With famine fears significantly alleviated, Mrs. Gandhi embarked on an extensive campaign odyssey. Navigating some 36,000 miles, and engaging with 20 million people across 300 national assemblies. Her exhaustive efforts bore fruit. The 1971 election saw the INC soaring with nearly double the votes of its nearest competitor. Indira Gandhi's triumph at the polls solidified her grip. Securing her popular mandate and ensuring her vision for India echoed through the hallways of power. Part 10. The 70s a decade of conflict, political turmoil, and the birth of Bangladesh. Indira Gandhi's India entered the 1970s amidst a geopolitical maelstrom that would reshape the subcontinent. The tumult began with Pakistan's 1971 general election, where the triumph of the Awami League championing East Pakistani self-rule was summarily dismissed by the West Pakistani power nexus. This rejection ignited a tinderbox of long-simmering ethnic and linguistic tensions. A general strike ensued in East Pakistan, unfurling a movement that refused to bow to decades of perceived injustice. The brutal suppression of Bengali students by Pakistani forces signaled the onset of the Bangladesh Liberation War, an event that cascaded into widespread violence. The tremors of conflict sent millions fleeing for refuge across India's borders. India, aligning with the Bengali cause, armed guerrilla operatives who sallied forth from Indian soil. When Pakistan launched preemptive strikes on Indian territories in December 1971, a full fledged war erupted. Outmatched, Pakistan capitulated within 13 days, paving the way for Bangladesh's emergence as a sovereign entity in March 1972. Indira Gandhi capitalized on the wartime victory, securing a resounding win in the ensuing state elections for the INC. However, beneath the surface, discontent fomented. Surging prices and corruption scandals involving INC functionaries fueled public ire. The epicenter of dissent was Bihar, where student protests spiraled into an educational lockdown. The dissidents spread like wildfire, demanding the dissolution of the Bihar state government and the calling of fresh elections. The movement found a seasoned champion in JP, Jayaprakash Narayan, a figure draped in moral authority. By spring 1975, the clarion call of the JP movement echoed through the corridors of Delhi, with a rallying cry for electoral integrity, the sacking of the Bihar Assembly, and probes into INC corruption. Gandhi remained unyielding, discounting the movement as a regional foment without national bearing. Yet a brewing legal skirmish from her past loomed on the horizon, ready to thrust her into the eye of the storm. Part 11. India's Flirtation with Authoritarian Rule In the mid-1970s, the mid-1970s was a watershed period in India's democratic journey as the nation teetered on the edge of authoritarianism. Mrs. Gandhi's position was rendered precarious following a legal accusation from a socialist challenger alleging that she exceeded spending limits 
during her 1971 parliamentary campaign. The case culminated on June 12, 1975, when the Allahabad High Court delivered a verdict that invalidated Mrs. Gandhi's election and riveted the nation. Although the infraction appeared minimal, this ruling, amplified by widespread corruption and the surging JP movement, escalated into a nationwide political crisis, with calls for Gandhi's resignation reaching a fever pitch. Mrs. Gandhi would not yield. Barred from voting in Parliament and with her public image eroding, she faced whispers of dissent even within her own party. Yet, she made a bold and defiant move. On June 25th, she declared a nationwide state of emergency, locking away opposition leaders including JP, quashing civil liberties, and muzzling the press. In a drastic bid for control, she had seemingly transformed into the century's first female autocrat. Following her edict, 36,000 individuals found themselves behind bars, while constitutional amendments sailed through the now-compliant parliament. The Supreme Court, cast in a shadow of fear for its own future, refrained from obstructing this overhaul. Utilizing her newfound authority, Mrs. Gandhi unveiled a policy onslaught aimed at economic stabilization, sluicing commodity prices, cutting taxes for the working class, and enhancing wages. The world watched aghast as India, a beacon of democracy, lurched toward despotism. Global leaders, including Mrs. Gandhi's erstwhile comrade, Willy Brandt, voiced their consternation over the human rights clampdown. Seventeen months into the emergency, the reasons for Mrs. Gandhi's decision to revoke the draconian measures and call for elections remain shrouded in mystery, her personal records yet to shed light on this enigmatic chapter of India's history. Perhaps international pressure played its part, or possibly she believed her economic salvos had imbued the electorate with enough goodwill to secure her political future. For now, the archives of history keep their secrets leaving us to ponder the motivations behind her dramatic pivot. Part 12. Turbulence and short-lived tenure of the Janata government. The aftermath of Indira Gandhi's iron-fisted rule saw an unprecedented unification of the opposition. In the aftermath of the emergency and following their release from incarceration, opposition leaders coalesced to form the Janata Party on January 19, 1977. This coalition spanned the breadth of political ideologies, mobilized by a shared objective to upend Mrs. Gandhi's dominance. In a historical upset during the elections of March 1977, the Indian National Congress faced its first ousting from power in independent India as the Janata Party ascended to governance. Ironically, however, the Janata Party's unity was superficial, anchored solely in their mutual resentment of Indira Gandhi's actions during the state of emergency. Before long, the Janata Party's administration was mired in the same malaise that had beset the latter days of the INC. A degeneration into corruption and infighting. It proved a rapid descent. It took the Janata Party merely a year to succumb to the vices that took the Congress three decades to manifest. Governing became a tumultuous affair with shifting loyalties and internal discord rendering decision-making increasingly erratic. To the public, they appeared less as leaders and more as a ludicrous ensemble unable to steer the country's course. 
During this period, caste-based violence flared anew, particularly in Bihar, unsettling the nation's precarious social balance. The horrific Belchi incident, where upper-caste assaulters murdered nine people from the scheduled castes, marked a somber flashpoint. The Belchi atrocity catalyzed Mrs. Gandhi's political resurgence. Dismissing any notions of retirement, she embarked on a dramatic journey to empathize with the affected families, traveling cross-country and ultimately via elephant. Her actions resonated with the public and cultivated her image as a champion of the marginalized. The Janata Party's attempts to curtail Gandhi's momentum through arrest backfired, enhancing her stature as a political martyr. As the Janata government crumbled, a resurgence of the INC became increasingly probable. This anticipation materialized when the electorate was summoned to the polls in January 1980. The verdict was unequivocal. Indira Gandhi clinched an overwhelming victory, signaling her mighty comeback. Nonetheless, her ensuing term was marred by an amalgamation of adversities, both at a personal level and in the broader political arena. Part 13. Escalating religious rifts set the stage for a turbulent decade in India. The 1980s brought a cascade of tumultuous events to India's doorstep. The nation was first plunged into grief by the untimely demise of Sanjay Gandhi, Indira Gandhi's younger son, in a tragic air crash in June 1980. This personal loss would set the stage for Rajiv Gandhi's political baptism. As Mrs. Gandhi steadied her government, the northern state of Punjab became a hotbed for escalating conflict. Six separatists, pushing for greater autonomy and federal concessions, collided head-on with Gandhi's strong centralist policies. The tensions escalated into a spiral of violence, marked by extremist actions including assassinations. The standoff reached its zenith at the sacred Golden Temple in Amritsar, where the extremist leader Jarnail Singh Hindranwala and his armed followers entrenched themselves. Operation Blue Star, the harrowing military siege that ensued, resulted in extensive casualties and widespread damage to the Holy Shrine. The Sikh community was left reeling by the assault on their spiritual heartland, triggering concerns over the safety of Mrs. Gandhi. Despite warnings, she chose not to dismiss the Sikh members of her personal security detail, a decision that would lead to her own tragic end on October 31, 1984, at the hands of two of her bodyguards. The assassination incited a backlash against Sikhs throughout India, plunging the country into a vicious cycle of retribution. Rajiv Gandhi, now at the helm, opted for a more reconciliatory approach than his mother acquiescing to several demands of the Sikh community. This strategy gradually succeeded in abating the violence. Embodying the ethos of a new generation, Rajiv Gandhi aspired to distance himself from the tainted legacies of traditional politics. His outreach to the Sikhs was a step in this direction. Nevertheless, it wasn't long before he found himself entangled in another religious maelstrom. In Ayodhya, a mosque's historical placement, atop the perceived birthplace of the Hindu deity Rama sparked contention. Fueled by burgeoning Hindu nationalist sentiments, pressures mounted on the government to permit year-round Hindu pilgrim access to the site. Rajiv Gandhi capitulated, ushering in an era of heightened Hindu activism. 
Simultaneously, a television series chronicling the life of Rama became a national sensation. Its broadcast virtually paused the nation, deepening the public's religious awakening and engagement. This confluence of developments amplified Hindu nationalism, casting long shadows over India's communal landscape and foreshadowing a period of intensifying religious identity politics. Part 14. India's shift towards economic liberalization in the 80s and the decline of INC hegemony. As the 1980s unfolded, India witnessed a paradigm shift, not just in its socio-religious fabric, but in its economic landscape as well. Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi, attuned to the aspirations of India's burgeoning middle class, which had swelled to around 100 million, initiated a gradual retreat from the rigidly controlled economy that had defined the nation's post-independence trajectory. Acknowledging that government controls had become synonymous with corruption and sluggishness, the Indian National Congress, INC, adopted a new mantra. It rolled back taxes, cut back on tariffs, and opened the floodgates for economic vibrancy. Consequently, the middle class prospered. Real estate and manufacturing flourished the latter recording a blistering growth rate of 8.9% in the latter half of the decade. However, India's rural populace, the majority of which were stricken by drought conditions between 1985 and 1987, felt sidelined by these reforms. The stark contrast between urban affluence and rural adversity alienated the agrarian communities from the INC, which they perceived as focusing solely on the urban elite's prosperity. This widening chasm manifested ominously for the INC as the 1989 elections loomed. Apprehension clouded Rajiv Gandhi's bid for re-election amid rising disenchantment in the rural sectors. Meanwhile, Hindu nationalist fervor intensified, with clamoring demands for the construction of a temple at the contentious site in Ayodhya gathering force. Despite a flurry of 11th-hour populist strategies resonant of his mother's approach, the electoral verdict was unforgiving. The INC faced a staggering blow, ceding its spot to a motley coalition of parties, thus ending the monolithic rule that had persisted for decades. The new coalition was immediately thrown into the deep end of governance as Kashmir, long a simmering cauldron of discontent, erupted into violence by the end of 1989. The kidnapping of a Kashmiri political leader's daughter by separatist factions and the subsequent government decision to acquiesce to their demands set off a cascade of violence, prompting a mass deployment of Indian soldiers to the region to quell the rising tide of insurgency, a tumultuous chapter that persists to this day, responsible for countless lost lives. The historical account from the 90s onwards is painted with a journalistic brush, bearing in mind the limited access to government records from this time. Thus, the narrative assumes a more interpretive, subjective stance, with the author's research navigating through an amalgam of perspectives and testimonies to capture the complex era of modern Indian history. Part 15. The advent of Hindu nationalism and the shifting political landscape of the 1990s. During the 1990s, the political tableau of India was redrawn with stark contours of religious nationalism. The Ayodhya dispute, which had been bubbling beneath the societal surface, came to a head on September 25, 1990, 
as Hindu nationalists advanced on the historic mosque, intent on its demolition to make way for a temple. Security forces intervened, detaining up to 150,000 protesters in a bid to thwart the demonstration. In a domino effect, the Bharatiya Janata Party, BJP, mired in the ethos of Hindu nationalism, withdrew its backing from the government, precipitating fresh elections in 1991. But the dissenters of Ayodhya had succeeded. A radical faction breached security perimeters and razed the mosque, altering India's socio-political fabric irrevocably. The elections of 1991 did not deliver a decisive mandate. However, a discernible pattern crystallized the BJP and INC cemented themselves as the titans of Indian politics, dispensing with the era of unilateral Congress hegemony. After a series of fluctuating alliances and electoral uncertainties, the BJP helmed a stable coalition government from 1998 onward, region itself firmly into the driver's seat of Indian governance. The political discourse veered sharply from the INC's traditional focus on social and economic reforms towards one infused with religious identity. This ideological pivot was not without its perils. In 2002, a confrontation in Gujarat, innocuous in its origins, spiraled into a conflagration that claimed 58 lives. The incident provoked a Hindu vigilantic reprisal, leaving approximately 2,000 Muslims slain. Gujarat's chief minister at the time, Narendra Modi, stood accused of not dousing the communal flames, a charge that nonetheless did not impede his re-election with a resounding verdict later that year. By the time the BJP's tenure neared its end, the INC had assimilated the political paradigm shift. Grasping the necessity of alliances, Congress stitched together a coalition that steered it back to governance in 2004. The wheel had turned full circle, marking the beginning of another storied chapter in the subcontinent's political annals. Part 16. The new millennium brings economic prosperity and a glimmer of peace to India. The dawn of the 2000s marked a pivotal chapter in India's history, characterized not only by persistent religious discord, but also remarkable strides toward economic and diplomatic progress. After decades overshadowed by conflict, the troubled region of Jammu and Kashmir experienced a respite as local elections took place in 2003, with violence tapering and tourism tentatively reviving. The decline in violent altercations was palpable as the numbers dwindled, fostering hope for enduring tranquility. India and Pakistan, historically at loggerheads, ushered in a period of reconciliation over the Kashmir issue. In an emblematic gesture, the inauguration of the Peace Bridge symbolized a thawing of icy relations, facilitating the reunion of families divided by the enduring dispute. Despite these promising developments, the specter of violence lingered. Kashmiri militant factions underscored their pervading presence with a string of horrific attacks in both Kashmir and Mumbai on July 11, 2006, claiming 209 lives and rupturing the ephemeral peace. Amidst the geopolitical turmoil, the Indian economy was undergoing a seismic transformation. The service sector, especially software development and call centers, burgeoned, contributing to an export leap from a modest $100 million in 1990 
to an astronomical $13.3 billion by 2004. The call center industry, charting exponential growth, was poised to burgeon further, anticipated to be a $25 billion dollar enterprise by 2008. This economic renaissance can be traced back to the visionary policies of India's first prime minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, who extolled the educational importance of English, thus seamlessly integrating Indian graduates into global English-speaking markets. The liberalization wave initiated under Rajiv Gandhi's premiership further propelled the private sector into prominence, spurring growth across previously state-dominant industries. The meteoric rise of the economy expanded the middle-class enclave and, critically, raised millions from the depths of destitution. Statistical portraits of poverty showed a descent from 40% at the onset of the 90s to about 26% by 2007. Yet, this still signified that nearly one in four Indians, approximately 300 million people, subsisted in want. The challenges ahead were daunting, with questions looming over the capacity of a service-led economy to sustain the broader quest for egalitarian progress. Only time would chart the course of India's journey toward a more equitable horizon. Final Summary Since its independence in 1947, India has navigated a complex landscape of deep-seated religious conflicts, unprecedented refugee upheavals, and widespread economic disparity. Through the decades, the nation has witnessed evolving governments tackling these challenges, each with varying success in enhancing the welfare and prosperity of its citizens. Amidst its democratic evolution, India experienced a brush with authoritarianism in the 1970s, yet the nation's commitment to democracy remained largely unshaken. Maintaining its democratic integrity, India continues to stand as a united republic, home to a tapestry of over a billion lives. Religious strife and diplomatic enigmas persist, casting a shadow over India's peace and stability. Nonetheless, the resilience of its republic, its people's faith in elections, and a steady stride towards economic and social improvement define the spirit of modern India, a nation that, despite its trials, stands firm on the global stage. Thank you for joining me today on this journey of learning and discovery as we explored the insights of another thought-provoking book in our growing library of knowledge. If you've enjoyed our time together, please take a moment to follow our podcast, give us a five-star rating, and share 20-minute books with other knowledge seekers. Your support truly means a lot. Don't forget to join me again in the next episode, where we will delve into another enriching book. Until then. Happy reading and happy listening.